0: Hello and welcome to the Kino Quickies podcast, the podcast that sounds like a mucky fumble in a German cinema, but is actually all about Quota Quickies, those swiftly made, low-budget films from the 1930s. Once a fortnight, we screen one of these films at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square in London, follow it up with an on-stage discussion with a specially invited expert guest, record the whole thing, and release it as a podcast shortly afterwards, which is what you, dear listener, currently have in your ears when I say we screen the films I'm referring to myself my name is Dominic Delargy, and our resident indispensable quota cookie expert dr. Lawrence Napper of King's College London and of course none of this would happen without the excellent staff at the Kino headed up by the king of Instagram Paul Carstairs and the most important people of all the audience. You too can be a member of that audience by going to ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Kino Quickies. That's ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Kino Quickies. And we would love to see you at our next screening, which is A Fire Has Been Arranged from 1935, a comedy starring Flanagan and Allen.
1: Underneath the arches.
0: That's on November the 20th at 1.30 pm. And all the details can be found on that ticket source link and you can also get there via kinoquickies.com but that's the next film the film for this episode which we screened at the Kino on sunday november the 6th 2022 is i lived with you from 1933. it stars iva novello and was based on the stage play of the same name which was written by iva novello and fittingly our guest for this one is an Ivan novello expert the author john snelson so it's time to head over to the Kino now on another rainy Sunday afternoon and listen to a handsome and debonair young man greet the audience and do a little intro to I lived with you. OK, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Thank you for braving the elements. Season two, film three of Kino Quickies, I lived with you. This is the only film season that is officially boycotting the Qatar World Cup, which is nice. Good for everybody else. Uh, so this is a longer film than we normally have normally the films about one hour six something like that This is about an hour thirty five and we also have a film in straight afterwards So we need to I'm gonna waffle less basically and then we're gonna have a shorter Q&A Which is a shame because there's lots to talk about so my name is Dominic DeLarge. over there We have our uh, resident quote cookie expert Dr. Lawrence Snapper, King's College London big round for Lawrence as usual and John is somewhere <coughs> Oh, there's John. Our guest is over there. It's John Snelson. John's an, uh, an author, uh, an expert on all things musical theatre. And John was a guest on my other podcast, Soho Bites, a while ago, talking about two very obscure musicals. Uh, I forgot what they were now. Ace of Clubs and... Crooked Mile, uh... Crooked Mile. Very good, yeah. That's very interesting. And over here we've got Sam. He's recording it today because uh, Robin is strutting his tush on the beaches of Phuket, as they say. So I live with you. Excellent film. Would you call it a rom-com? Yes. Yeah, it's a comedy and it's romantic. It stars Ivan Novello, that's the handsome gentleman there, who also wrote the play on which the film is based. It's about a, a Russian prince who moves in with a normal London family and all the uh, the turmoil that, that causes. Um, we were chatting before. Ivan Novello was this gigantic star, and I wasn't really, I didn't really appreciate just how big he was, but. I read somewhere that he could be considered the british equivalent of rudolph valentino which <laughs> all these things i say these things curling my toes slightly in case Sean and lawrence pick them apart later but rudolph valentino had this famous funeral where there was millions of women weeping in the streets and everything and uh Ivor had a similar thing Golders green creme and it was uh, it was packed with people all women even though he wasn't the marrying kind, <laughs> they, uh, that's, that's what they say. And he's been—he um, has been compared uh, to Noel Coward. He was a sort of contemporary and friend and rival, and yet Noel Coward, his work seems to have lasted longer. There's various theories about that. We'll talk about that later. Uh, one that I did read, which we've already poo-pooed in the in our pre-show pre-show, was that. Um, Novello wrote with humour and Coward wrote with wit, but John has a better explanation of that, which we'll talk about later. So the cast, I'm rattling through. I'm doing well. The cast, Mr. and Mrs. Wallace of the family who um, Ivor moves in with, they're played by Elliot Makeham, who, if you saw the the Last Journey, he plays the pickpocket in the in the Last Journey, completely different character in this. And Minnie Rayner, who Ivor Novello works with a lot on stage, who's a, I have a theory actually that. The character of Mrs. Wallace is based on Ivan Velo's mum, formidable mother. We'll talk about that maybe. Uh, the two daughters are called Gladys and Ada because it was the 1930s. And um, they're played by Ursula Jeans as Gladys. And she's fan- lovely and fantastic. And Ida Lupino plays Ada, Ida Lupino from just down the road. And she's 15 when she made this. Same as, in, she was also in the ghost camera, which we saw in the first season and I think it's the same year, so yeah, very, very young, but playing older, and she's great as well. Directed by Maurice Elvey, who purports to be the most prolific British film director of all time, Um, and produced by our old friend Uncle Julius Hagen at Twickenham Studios, who's done all but one of the films in this season, Um, and I think you're going to like it. So that's it, quick turnaround. So when we we finish the film, we're going to set up the mics and everything as quickly as we can, and then hustle you back in so that we squeeze in more um, uh, QA time with John and Lawrence. So, uh, thank you very much. I hope you enjoy the film, and I will see you later. Thank you very much. Well, I hope that was swift enough. In my hurry to save time there, I forgot to mention that before the film, we were going to watch the two trailers for Talking Pictures TV. This has become a much loved prelude and a moose boosh, if you will, to all Kino Quickie screenings. We show these partly because we love Talking Pictures TV. And partly because they've been very generous in supporting us, and this has allowed us to drop our ticket prices for this season from £12.50 to £10. Find the brilliant Talking Pictures TV on Freeview Channel 82, FreeSat Channel 306, on Sky it's 328 and Virgin 445. They also have a catch up service at tptvencore.co.uk. Okay. The audience are watching the film and we will go back to the keynote for the Q&A afterwards. But for now, in a weak attempt to make you feel like you're not missing out, I'm going to try to fill you in on the story of Ivan I Lived With You. In the back office of a high end diamond dealership, we meet Mr. Wallace, hard at work assessing a batch of diamonds for quality. He's played by Elliot Makem. and here's his secretary, Miss Brown
2: yourself on saturday afternoons mr wallace oh, same as i've done for 20 years take it
0: easy
1: why
2: thought you might like to take me
3: out take you out are you aware miss brown that i am a married man sorry you could still take things easy i shouldn't expect you to get fresh with me or anything
2: fresh and what do you mean by fresh well uh familiar like familiar
1: i'm surprised at you miss brown I don't you know what you modern girls are coming to i've got grown-up daughters if they behaved like that, I'd put them across me knees.
0: And now we meet those grown-up daughters, Gladys, played by Ursula Jeans, and Ada, played by Ida Lupino, both of whom work as assistants in upmarket shops. Ada phones Gladys at work with some disappointing news.
2: Hello? Oh, is that you, Ada? Yes. Listen, I can't come out this afternoon. Mr Thornton's got a good customer in there. She's fed up, that's what I am. Oh. Oh, but listen dear, I, I th- Oh. Oh, she's gone. What's the trouble? It's my sister, Ada. Someone's messed up her afternoon. Oh, I should worry. Do her good. Oh. Well, where are we going, anyway? I know. Let's go to Hampton Court. Yes. Yes, Hampton Court will do me. Come on, we'll get a green line bus.
0: So Gladys and her work colleague, May, leave the shop for their well-earned afternoon off at Hampton Court, where, a few hours later, Glad finds herself lost in the maze. She circles back to a bench at which she'd previously sat to eat her lunch, only to find... A man lying on the bench, munching Glad's uneaten sandwiches. Go
4: away please, I'm resting.
2: Yes, so I see. And eating my sandwiches too.
0: They're yours? They're nice.
2: Oh, I'm glad you like them. I'd have had a chop cooked if I'd known.
0: This, as yet unnamed character, is played by Ivan Novello. He turns out to be a slightly odd fellow, blunt and direct, but not in a cruel way. He tells her that he is Prince Felix, son of the deceased Tsar Czar and Tsarina of Russia, He has no particular plans but has pitched up here at Hampton Court because it was a place at which his mother had frequently stayed. He intends to sleep on that bench in that maze because he has nowhere else to stay. Gladys, who was doubtful at first that this strange man is actually a prince, is finally convinced and feels she can't allow a prince to sleep rough.
2: Now, now what do you think of this for an idea? I know mother wouldn't mind. In fact, I'm sure she'd love it. Now, you haven't got anywhere to stay. We've got room. We'll put you up, just for the night.
4: Put me up? Where?
2: I mean, you can stay with us. There's lots of room.
4: Do you have good coffee? I like good
2: coffee. <laughs> you are funny. Fancy talking about coffee when you haven't even got a roof to sleep and... Uh...
4: Oh, but I have.
0: Now... Over to the modest Wallace home now in Fulham, where Mr Wallace has arrived back from work, as has Ada, who's getting ready to go out on a date with a Mr Thornton. We also meet Mrs. Wallace, Edie, played by Minnie Rayner, and Aunt Flossie, played by Cicely Oates. She's Edie's sister and a sort of live in housekeeper. They're a close family and their relationships are presented in a very natural way. Mr. and Mrs. Wallace, even after 24 years of marriage, are very affectionate with each other. And then arrives Mort, played by Jack Hawkins. He's dating Glad and something of a flash Harry. He's clearly held in high esteem by Mrs Wallace, though, who seems to think he's hilarious.
4: Greetings all. Hello, Mum. How's the old girl? Prime? Oh, Prime. Lovely. Well, that's that stuff. How's that? Oh, Dressed for dinner, I see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and now, back from Hampton Court, is Glad. Her guest waits in the hall. Just
2: a sec. Before we have tea, I've, um, I've got someone with me. But, May, surely? ask got India. No, no, not me. Someone else.
5: He's, uh, he's out there. You've not been talking to strangers. He's a prince.
1: (laughs) Prince?
4: Someone's been pulling your leg.
2: Yes, he is. He's a Russian prince. His name's Felix. What, Felix the cat?
0: (laughs) Out in the hallway, Felix can smell the haddock that Aunt Flossie is cooking. The wallet is like haddock. He's apparently quite peckish and enters the living room before being invited in. I can smell fish. If I don't have some soon I'll be sick in many places.
2: Mum, this is the prince. That's my mother, it's my father, it's my sister Ada, uh, I mean Adrian, and Mr Templin.
0: Mother. To the consternation of all, he kisses mother, father uh, and Ada on the cheeks. Adrian,
1: <coughs> I uh, understand...
5: Thunder, Shut tr- up, Dad. Where's your manners? Won't you sit down, uh, 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 Prince, if that's what we call you?
4: You may call me that if you like, but I would much prefer Felix. After all, you know you are my mother.
5: Uh, I'm your what?
4: The lady of the house is always my mother.
5: What a funny idea. Well, this is a surprise.
4: Yes. Glad tells us you call yourself a prince or some such thing. Yes. Are you angry with me for being something I cannot help? I assure you it is no advantage to be a prince, particularly a Russian one just at this moment. If I were not, I uh, shouldn't be hungry, and I'm very hungry, I want some fish.
0: Eventually, they all sit down to tea, bread and haddock, apart from Flossie who returns to the kitchen. She seems a bit suspicious of this new arrival. After tea, the family look at Felix's locket containing a picture of the Tsar. They assume the diamonds on the outside of the locket are fake until Mr. Wallace, a professional diamond dealer, remember, tests them with his special diamond testing kit. Well, genuine. Beautiful stones. Did you know they were real, sir?
4: Well, of course I did, but I wanted you to enjoy yourself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're worth a lot of money. Look here. How would you like me to handle this for you? In what way? Well,
4: I mean, would you like me to make a few inquiries, see what I could get for you? I take it you want to sell them? Sell them? Oh, no, I couldn't do that. One does not sell what the Tsar gives.
0: Despite the diamonds not being for sale, their enormous value impresses the family. Glad uses this moment to ask if it would be okay for Felix to stay for a while. Oh,
2: I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't p- presume. Oh, he doesn't take it like that, do you, Prince? I mean, he'd like it if you and Mum were agreeable. Agreeable? Well,
5: the Prince sees how we live. I mean, well, we don't go in for grand dinners and whatnot.
4: Dinners? But I've never eaten more excellently.
5: Oh, that's flotty.
4: I thought it must be.
5: <laughs> well, what do you say, Dad?
4: <laughs> that's for you to say, Mum. I've no objection.
5: You haven't? Well, now that's the first time I've known your dad take to anyone at first sight. compliment for you, Prince. Come on, lad. Help me change the rooms over.
0: While the women of the house prepare Felix's room, the men chat downstairs. Felix is typically blunt and undiplomatic about Mrs Wallace.
4: Your wife is nice too. She was pretty once. Yes, she must have been. What a pity it is she's now so old. Old? I mean for you. We're the same age. You are? Ah, but then, you know, women age so much quicker than men. When the man is in his prime, the woman is finished. It's a pity, but she's finished. Uh, where do you keep your lady? Okay, you go on talking like this and you'll find yourself in wrong. Oh, no, forgive me if I say anything wrong, but, but you are a man in the prime. Now, yes. look here, Prince. Go easy with that
2: sort of talk. I mean, you know, we're plain people. I mean, we get the news of the world and all that, but... Well, that's the papers, not life. Well, not our sort of life.
0: Despite Mr Wallace's protestations, Felix's talk may well have planted a seed in his mind about the possibilities of saucy extracurricular activities outside the family home. They get on to the subjects of money and Felix's lack of it. He has a change of heart and decides that he will, after all, sell some diamonds. He really ought to repay the Wallace's for their generosity and instructs Mr Wallace to put some of the diamonds up for sale. Flossie remains distinctly frosty towards this new house guest. This is not reciprocated by the prince, though, who admires her immensely.
4: She is marvellous. There is pain in her eyes, but there is still a smile in her heart.
0: Mort wants to take Gladys out in his new car and is annoyed and offended when she rebuffs him. She can't possibly go out when they have a new house guest. Ada has no such qualms, though, and is dressed up to go dancing. But when Felix finds out she'll be travelling by tram, He says he will pay Mort to chauffeur Ada there. Ada is now very taken with their royal guest. A few days later, Mr Wallis is alone at his office and has clearly sold a diamond or two because he's counting cash into an envelope for Felix. He decides to help himself to a generous unofficial commission. A few more days have passed and it looks as though a decent amount of cash has made its way back to Felix because we now find ourselves back at the Wallace's living room, which has been refurnished in an extravagant, gaudy style. He reclines on the couch, strumming on a balalaika, while Flossy dusts around him. She is unimpressed.
4: Why do you work so hard?
3: It's my job.
4: I would give you three servants if you like.
3: I can manage.
4: I would like to give you everything you want in the world, but you don't want anything. You're a very disagreeable old woman, and I love you so much. You like what I've done to this room?
3: Look all right in a palace.
4: <laughs> what do you know about palaces?
3: More than you know about people like us.
4: I know you well enough to love you, every one of you.
3: If you really love people, you don't spoil them.
4: Spoil? You call this spoiling? A few bits of Russian atmosphere? I have known a time when a whole town belonged to me. I had only to ask for the moon and someone would have run out and got it for me.
0: Mr. Wallace, it turns out, is continuing to enrich himself off the back of Felix's diamonds and is using it to fund secret assignations with a Miss Violet Bradshaw. Glad discovers this when she spots the two of them one day in the back of a chauffeur-driven car. Mr. Wallace is looking a bit more youthful, having shaved off his bushy moustache and is enjoying both a fat cigar and the attentions of his younger female companion. And he's not the only one whose aspirations are changing thanks to the influx of royal money. Witness Mrs. Wallace talking to a fishmonger.
5: Very nice haddock today, Mrs. Wallace. Haddock? Is there such a fish? I want some caviare. Ten pounds of caviari. I'll see if we have any, Madam. Thank you. Caviar, Mrs. Wallace? Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Sawley? <laughs> caviari are so expensive. I mean, uh, caviaria is expensive. Caviari-are? Caviari, caviaria Oh, is. Uh, well, the dear Prince do on it. Come along, Maggie. I'm terribly anxious to see him. You'll soon have the opportunity. I'm thinking of giving a tea party shortly to meet the dear Prince.
0: News soon spreads amongst the posh ladies that Mrs. Wallace has a royal house guest.
5: We've just been hearing about your distinguished visitor. I do
4: hope you'll give us an opportunity of meeting him, Mrs. Wallace.
5: (laughs) The dear Prince thinks of holding a little levy shortly. Probably take the form of tea. High of course.
4: Very high.
0: At home, Prince Felix is strumming his balalaika when Glad returns home from work early with some bad news.
2: Oh, it's you! I've got the sack. you got the sack? What are you going to put in it? No, no, don't be silly. I mean, I've lost my job.
4: That means you will not go there again? Oh, that is nice. You will now be here to talk to me in the morning.
2: That's all very well. He's not gonna get me my money each week.
4: You would like money each week? All right, darling, I'll sell another diamond.
2: Oh, no, you won't.
4: Oh, yes, I will. It's right, I should give you things. Look what you give me.
2: We don't give you much.
4: You give me everything. I've got a home, I've got people around me loving me. I've learned to laugh again.
0: The conversation deteriorates into a spat with Glad becoming genuinely upset and Felix behaving like a petulant child. And then he kisses her. A flicker of a smile plays on her face, but only briefly.
2: Don't you do that to me! Why not? It doesn't mean anything. No, but it's nice. Not my kind of nice.
4: Oh, darling, you are so silly to be so good. Oh, you're terrible.
2: Have you had your bath yet? No. Why not?
4: It's too cold.
2: I don't know how you can do it.
4: Do you want me to have my bath? Yes. All right. But you've got to come and talk to me while I have it. It's very nice in the bath, but it's very lonely. I will lie in the warm water and we will talk.
2: You are the limit, as if I could. You never seem to think of what's decent and what's not.
0: He eventually does go for his bath after Flossie and Glad nag him. Mrs. Wallace returns from a shopping trip, laden down with parcels, and begins to tuck into Felix's vodka in the middle of the afternoon. Things have definitely changed in the Wallace house. The sight and her dad with another woman has clearly been playing on Glad's mind, and she starts to question her mother about their marriage. She then reveals what she saw.
2: What was she like? Oh, well, I, I didn't have time to see her properly, but but she was nicely dressed, you know, nice white fox fur and all that. Why, Mum, you you could have knocked me down. Did they? Did they seem to know each other? Well, they seem to be a bit familiar. The dirty little beast! Oh no, no, Mum dear, don't cry. I'll show him. I'll show him. Oh. <laughs> years.
0: Felix returns from his bath. He hasn't actually had a bath, just splashed the water a bit, and finds Glad attempting to console the inconsolable Mrs. Wallace. She leaves her mother to Felix, whose solution is to drink more vodka. And now we go to the cause of Mrs. Wallace's unhappiness her husband. He's in a fancy-dancy restaurant with you-know-who it doesn't appear to be a very happy affair. In fact, he seems downright miserable and tells Violet that Mrs. Wallace knows about the affair and that it has to end. She is less than pleased about that.
2: If you think you're going to walk out on me just because that old trollop makes herself unpleasant, you're wrong. It's no
4: Vi. I've made up my mind.
2: Have you? Now you attend to me. You'll come round as usual. If you don't, I'll be around to see you. Put that in your spoon and drink it.
0: Ada arrives back to a very tense home. Mother is still very upset and father quakes upstairs. We learn that this is just a visit from Ada because she's recently moved out into, it appears, a flat with her boss, Mr Thornton. Very racy stuff. She's not happy though and professes love for Felix.
2: Felix, do be nice to me.
0: But I am nice to you. I keep telling you you're quite chic now.
2: Oh, you've no feelings. No feelings at all.
4: That's very funny. That's just what Glad said.
5: Glad? You haven't been making love to her, have you?
4: No, she doesn't want me to. How do you know? Well, I tried. No good.
5: I wouldn't turn you down, Felix. Oh, do be sweet to me. Just a little. And I'd be
2: happy.
0: Ada nags Felix to kiss her, and reluctantly, he does.
2: Oh. Don't mind me. Hello, Glad. Hello yourself. Does Mum know about this? I'm sure she'd like to. She loves a bit of romance.
4: This is not romance.
2: You're damned right it isn't. Nothing is with you. I know what's the matter with me. I'm too easy. You take my advice,
5: Glad. If you've got a crush on him, don't let him know it. He might get you somewhere.
0: As Glad prepares for Mrs. Wallace's posh ladies' tea party, she's still upset and harangues Felix for his lack of emotional attachment, accusing him of being like a nice vase with no flowers in it. She storms off and Felix ends up in conversation with Mum. When she mentions in passing that Glad will one day marry Mort, Felix gets very emotional and says he would marry her instead. This is music to the ears of Mrs. Wallace, but they agree that this will be their little secret until the time is right. The guests start to arrive for the tea party and before long the living room is full of posh ladies expectantly waiting to meet the exotic royal visitor from overseas.
5: That's another night. How do you do, Mrs. Butler? How do you do? I
2: brought my companion.
5: How do you do, Miss uh, Breeze. Miss Breeze? Now, would you like to wash your hands on anything? Uh-huh. Here's my daughter, Glad- uh, Gladys. I think you all know each other. Of course. How do uh, you do? Well, yes. Now, which would you like, milk or lemon? A la Rush, you know. Where is he? Uh, pardon me for a moment while I go and get the lemon,
3: Maggie.
0: There's a tense atmosphere in the house, Mr Wallace is skulking around doing his penance and both Glad and Ada are slightly on edge. Felix however is in a particularly mischievous mood but plays the part of a prince well for the benefit of the posh ladies, bowing, clicking his heels and kissing hands. After charming the group whilst also gently mocking them, he decides it's time for vodka and begins to fill the ladies teacups.
4: Now, I think we all drink up in the teacups. It goes very well in tea. No, I never
0: tasted.
2: You it? You never have? Then no.
4: I show you that once you start, you will never stop. No, I don't really think
2: I to. Oh, but you must, Russia.
4: otherwise I should be most offensive.
2: <laughs> the national drink of
4: Russia.
6: <laughs> no, 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 I don't think they all But of friend. course you <laughs> must. It's very good for us.
4: <laughs> now then, when I say one, two, three, galupchik, we all drink right up. But no sipping, otherwise it will go straight to your heads. Now then, one, two, no sipping. No. No. One, two, three, galupchik. <coughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: she likes it. I knew she would one more time. Oh, oh now you I must.
2: You'll oh, find no, 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 the one. second
4: time it goes down so much easier. You'll find it will just slip down past the utensils. Yes. Now then. One, two, three, kalupchi. It was much easier that time. <laughs> what did I tell you?
3: Oh, May, whatever will your dad say? <laughs>
0: The party is just getting slightly raucous when there's an unexpected arrival.
2: What name, please? Miss Violet Bredshaw.
0: It's Mr Wallace's bit on the side. This sends him into spasms of silent panic in the back parlour.
5: Miss Bredshaw! I'm sorry, I didn't know you had company. Now, you bring the lady a chair. Go on,
0: sit down. Mr Wallace tries to listen in from outside the door. It hasn't dawned on Mrs Wallace, who's definitely a bit Irish-mist, exactly who this brassy guest is, but Ada and Glad are beginning to realise. Glad tells her mother.
4: What?
5: Oh, get her out of here. I think you made some mistake. I beg your pardon? You heard. Go on, get out of here. I came here to see Will. And who's Will? My husband, I presume. Go on, up it.
0: The tea party ladies are obviously taken aback by this carry-on. Felix decides to intervene. Come with me,
2: please. Oh, no, you don't. I'm not being ordered about by any straight foreigners with dirty habits. I've come here for my rights. Right. walks out on me and leaves at the dirty little tyke. And who does he think he is? Not fit to meet his family, aren't I? A drunken old woman with a daughter that can teach me a thing I can't. bitch. That's who she is.
0: Violet spits in Felix's face and he slaps her.
2: <laughs> Get in there!
0: He drags her off to the other room to have a word with her.
4: <laughs>
0: Mrs Wallace now turns on Ada, who's trying to comfort her. But Mrs Wallace, who's in a state of high emotion, cannot forgive Ada for living in sin with her boyfriend.
5: I never want to see your face again. Oh, Mum, you don't mean it. Don't die! Don't die. I'll and I?
0: And with Mrs. Wallace's howls of anguish ringing in our ears, we must leave Fulham in 1933 and travel forwards in time to meet the thankfully much less hysterical John Snelson for our Q&A. John is an accomplished author who has written extensively about the performing arts, particularly opera, and his new book about the history of British musical theatre is out soon. We will return to the synopsis after our discussion for the spoilery ending bit, but don't panic. I'll give you plenty of warning about that. For now, though, let's find out what everybody thought about I Live With You as we return to the intimate auditorium of the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey Square. So, Sam's Press Record. So, welcome back, everybody. Thanks for coming back. Quick straw poll. Who liked the film? Who didn't like the film? With a and lots of arms gone up. Brilliant. Excellent. Did you like it, Lawrence and John? Yes. It's quite bonkers. It is quite bonkers, isn't it? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Um, one of the things I see in it is it quite a layered work because it's it's got a history that ties back to Hollywood. It's got stage appearances. Um, and then it ends up on screen. So you're not just seeing one thing. You're actually seeing a compilation of all sorts of things that have happened in its history.
0: So let's... Um, there's, there's so much to talk about. I think we'll mostly be sticking to Ivan Novello uh, as a subject. John, could you give us like a, oh, I don't know, 30 second potted biog of who was it,
1: where's he from, what's his, what's his real name, or that sort of thing? Right. Um, David Iver Davis uh, was born in, um, in Cardiff. His mother was a very famous singing teacher who had huge success. He was brought up amongst famous singers and musicians. His mother was extraordinary. Um, he Had lots of natural talent, uh, was a choir boy in Oxford, then went on, wrote Keep the Home Fires Burning, became one of the leading popular songwriters of his day, crashed two planes while he failed to learn to fly in the Royal Navy Air Force, uh, went on to become a silent screen star, was taken up by Hollywood, who didn't know what to do with him as a script writer, incidentally, not a performer, came back to this country. Um, performed in plays, suddenly decided to go back into musicals and then we get the big famous Ivan Novello shows that he is best remembered for. By the time in 1935 he did Glamorous Night, the first big show at Drury Lane, he was already serially successful in many fields and many people forget that. That was quite good.
0: I think that's had a little round of applause.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, and he was a gigantic star, wasn't
0: he? And I, th- I was saying before, we kind of lost track of this a little bit. Is this, was it, why, what was his appeal? Was it his, was it his multifacetedness or was it his
1: his good looks or? Well, I think the good looks is the bit, I mean, Lawrence, you can probably say about how he got into silent film.
6: Yeah, I mean, I think he was, well, he was discovered by Louis Mercanton, a French film director, and who basically like saw him and was like, oh, he's hot, like, let's have him. Um, and I mean, I think that's the, that's the explanation for his appeal in silent cinema is he's just like, he's really, Easy on the eye and charismatic. I think he's got a sort of charisma in the uh, on silent in on the screen in silent films. Um, and it, like it totally translated, you know, like women were totally into him. So, um, but also, I think another thing about him that explains his stardom is that he was massively hard working, you know, he was constantly writing stuff, he was constantly in stuff, he was constantly. You know, he was—he was not somebody who rested on his laurels. He really worked hard for that. Hard. In uh,
1: 1950. Eight, I think it was Wolf Mankiewicz wrote an ABC of entertainment and uh, it goes through alphabetically and the entry for Ivan Novello consists of nothing but two paragraphs describing his um, uh, the, the money he made his activities as a businessman there is not sing- one single word about him as a performer or as a writer or composer it is all about his business which I think tells you something about Wolf Mankiewicz but also <laughs> about how Novello became quite so successful Successful. He's a rich man by the time of twenty five-ish, twenty three, twenty four. Yeah, I he? mean, keep the home
6: fires burning was such a massive success that it pretty much made him for life, I think and that was in whenever it was like 1914
1: 14 yeah yes, so. yes he, he was uh, he had some serial strings of income so he was a performer in film he was a performer on stage he was a songwriter you may know the number and His Mother Came To from the um, Jack, Jack Buchanan number from the review A to Z um, the music of that is by Ivan Avello. He he was contributing songs to a lot of famous performers so it's not just one identity you have with Ivan Novello, it's multiple <laughs> areas of activity all feeding off each other. And he lived in a flat in, on the Old Witch. There's a plaque, isn't there, I think? Yes, there is. He, he lived above one of the theatres there. Uh, and at one point, his m- mother and father actually had the flat above the other theatre. And he lived there for, for all, all his, his main adult life. He had other homes, he had um, his country house, red roofs, But that, that theatre flat, the Old Witch, was where all the great and the good knew to go in theatre land. Um, the theatre world revolved around Ivor's flat there, yes. So one of the little segments, and I'm going to try and get towards the film now, one of the little segments of
0: his life was when he had this period of time working as a Hollywood scriptwriter. And you have a theory that this film came, or the play
1: that led to this film came out of that could you explain that? Yes in in, uh, 1930 uh, Novello appeared on Broadway in two plays the first was his symphony in two flats which didn't go down so well but the second one the truth game did at that point Hollywood were they had this transition into talkies and they were looking for people from the stage and the theatre world who could go in to help with the transition towards um, sound film now they didn't take on Novello as an actor although he acted in those films they took him on as a scriptwriter, because he had written both plays, and very much this his style of being immediate and quite charming, quite light comic but with little romantic undertones, very flexible writing style aimed at a real communication with a the theatre audience. He was taken out, put under contract to MGM and they didn't know what to do with him. He worked on a few films including Tarzan of the Apes um, in which he uh, wrote the little bit of dialogue in the scene about me, Tarzan, you, Jane. It's actually Tarzan Jane with some pointing but that was Ivan Avello. Um, I could have done that. Absolutely. But the thing was when he was uh, on Broadway In the play, he made the acquaintance briefly of Ruth Chatterton, who was a big American stage actress. She was also placed under contract and had gone out to act in in uh, MGM Films. She tried to help Ivor, who was getting bored in his beach house in Malibu, and got him to play a part in a film she was in called uh, Once a Lady. The film is dire. If you can survive the first hour, there's about 10 minutes of interest and then it goes off again. But the significance is, if I tell you the plot, the general outline is that a Russian lady, very moody and rather doom-ridden, meets an English potential MP in Paris. They marry. She goes to his very stuffy, upper-class house, causes chaos with all the relatives, and then, in tragic circumstances, flees. Now, you can see where I'm going with this. There one line in it where um, the, the Russian Anna asks her husband why the family hate her. And he says, quite simply... All the things they value, you mock. Now, at the time, Ivor was bored and he was doing stuff. He had a bit part in this film. The lead male role was given to him. He didn't think it suited him. He soon get, he managed to get out of his contract. He then came back to London, where he had two plays he had written when he was in Hollywood. One of them was I Lived With You. And what it looks like to me is that I Lived With You is the play on that same theme, the comic version that Ivor would have written for himself in the lead role. And the scenes that he is in in the film... Actually, are the ones that generate the interest for this particular film. Um, and it's all, uh, note, watching it through today, I was really struck by those moody, staring off, mm, Russian doom laden pronouncements that exactly mirrors how Ruth Chatterton behaves in Once a Lady. So I've, I have no evidence other than my own observations and reading the scripts and knowing about it, but it seems to me there are too many points of connection there not to make between his big Hollywood one talkie failure and his big London stage success. It's good enough for me. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I have no evidence that for my theory, which is that Mrs. Wallace is based on his mother. Do we what do you think about that?
1: You are not the first person to say that. Oh,
0: really? That thought was having a unique thought.
1: It's a good thought though, and yes, there, there is an element. Mam was a, a character all herself. And we shouldn't forget that she was a very prominent singing teacher, larger than life character and hugely successful on her own account, but we tend to remember her now in the way she's described from this rather large, overdressed lady turning up at all the first nights and very much being (laughs) Ivor's mother and getting into all sorts of scrapes that he had to get her out of.
0: Excellent. Um, Do we have anything for the audience? Oh, there's a hand raised in the air. Wait for the mic over there.
7: Yeah, it's um, interesting. Is it on? It doesn't Uh, amplify, it's just for the podcast. Oh, okay, fine. Um, yeah, it's interesting that you're talking about the the, the genesis of, of the film, because uh, but, al- but also I think that that kind of painless Russian wandering around Europe is, was quite a popular theme at the time. Obviously, because it was still only less than twenty years after the Russian Revolution, and there was, it was you know it, it, it was quite a sort of um, a good plot point, I think, in in other things. But um, also, there, I was wondering what else you knew about the. The genesis of it, because the cast were fantastic there was a great um uh, a lot of supporting actors in him and i don't where do you do you know if any of them are in the play this well,
1: 11 of them <laughs> uh, in fact substantially all the main parts not Ida Lupino, but most of the main parts are played by the people who, who took them on stage and there's a lot of evidence for this in the acting. For example, when uh, Miss Thorsby James gets her um, dress caught in her heel, if you read the script, there are just two lines, but what you see on the sta- uh, film there is clearly what they worked out as the stage presentation with him going and helping her. And there are lots of moments like that. There was also one thing commented on when the play was done about this relationship between um, prince, the prince terrorizing the hired-in maid and hissing at her and chasing her around. And this was a feature, and audiences loved it, we only get one little moment of it in the film, but it comes from the staging of it. And there's one other thing I'd say about the staging as well. It was an unusual set. It was originally put on in the Prince of Wales Theatre, which is a very wide stage, and then went uh, to the Shaftesbury, which is also a large stage, large for, for domestic comedy. But it had what was called in the, scri- in the descriptions a, a trick stage. What it was was three rooms, so you had the kitchen... The main, the front room, and then the back parlour, and they were all constructed on one truck. And this could be slid to each side of the stage to reveal more or less of the rooms. So the whole thing was conceived almost with that filmic idea we see of being able to move from one space to the other during the course of the action. Uh, it's a development I think of Ivan play Symphony in Two Flats which consisted of scenes in two flats one above you know one was above the other and there was a comedy going on in one and there was a tragic uh, drama going on in the other and it's swapped between the two but with curtains it's almost like that this expands that as to how do you get the stage now to show multiple locations so I think that that stage element also feeds through um, quite easily in to the film, so we've got a very familiar cast with the whole script and the mannerisms, and we've got a film setting that enables that flow between move uh, between rooms to be maintained. So
0: this is something because one of the perennial questions I'm always asking in this series is: Is it a quota quickie? Um, and I think <laughs> Lawrence. I mean, I think it, it doesn't feel like one in some ways. Because it is quite long, living But the fact that it was an existing play, could Julius Hagen just whack it on yeah, the film? Yeah, I think,
6: I think there's a sense in which that's true. I mean, it, 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 like in, you know, the, the 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 way of telling quite quickie usually is that it's that it's that it's an hour long and not much more because that was the you know that was the legislative criteria for a a a feature film, um, and anything beyond that was losing money. But uh, this. And also, and this is uh, dis- I don't know if you noticed, but it's distributed by Gaumont. Uh, And I think that might be to do with Novello himself, because obviously he had been a Gaumont star before, a Gainsborough star before, um, when he was in in the silent films, you know, in The Lodger and all those, they're all Gainsborough films. Um, So that might be to do with why it's being distributed by Gaumont, but certainly I think the fact that it's a pre-existing stage show that has all of the actors, they don't need to be rehearsed, they can just be placed in front of the camera and then Elvie can work out the blockings, you know, quite quickly, I think. The other thing that's really weird about it is, all of Hagen's usual team are there. You like the sound recordist and the and the and and the adaptation is done by the people who do really crappy kredit- quickies. And you sort of think, yeah, actually, I don't think they did those roles in this. I think this was all done by by the stage oh, team, and they just had contracts that meant that they had to get the credits for those roles because they were working in the studio.
0: And Maurice Elvey was here, kind of jobbing, churn them out kind of guy.
6: Elvie's quite, I mean, there's quite a lot of debate about Elvie. You know, it, it used to be said that he was sort of jobbing, churning, out, churn them out kind of guy. And he he is the most prolific film director. I so know, that's, not he's, a, like, that's not an that's empty not a claim. Lie. He, he, okay. But also that's partly because he starts really early. He starts in the sort of teens um, and he goes right through to the 50s. Um, and he is consistently making films all the time throughout his career but he does make some really spectacular movies like Hindle Wakes from 1927 is kind of amazing film a a, a friend of mine who did her PhD on him you know makes a really good argument for saying that actually he's a really impressive director in the in the early period in the during the war period um, and through into the 20s and this is the moment where he sort of slightly goes downhill you know working for for quota studios is Something that happens a lot with actually uh, silent film directors who've you know had great careers and then are sort of considered to be a bit past it. But Maurice Helvey may have been considered to be a bit past it well at the time he was making this, but he was still making films 20 years later. So He did a decent job
0: with this film, I think. Yeah, I think, think it's, yeah, it's well done. <clears> is, is it, I mean, has he just sort of sat back while the stage people did their thing?
6: No, I think he would have been very efficient about sorting out, like, you know where the cuts would come and all of that kind of stuff. I noticed a few bits where Novello is shot a little bit like a silent star. Yeah. There are some, there are quite a lot of extraneous close-ups of him where you sort of think, oh yeah, this is. This yeah, is sort of silent there are a couple episode. of
0: holes in the plot for me. Having watched it about five thousand times this week, <laughs> one of them is Mr. Wallace starts his affair with the old, um, but that's not the same lady as in the first scene who says, "Thought you might take me out." I thought that was the same woman the first time I watched it, but it's a completely different person. So when did that affair with Violet begin? I thought maybe that's been chopped out. John's waiting to jump in. And, <laughs> and the other one is, and you can dress both of these, the other one is, oh, also his moustache disappears as well. All, that's all part of Violet coming on uh, the scene. Mrs. Wallace suddenly is turning around and berating Ada for living in sin. I don't see the moment where she realises that her daughter is no better than she should be, whatever. I mean, is that all stuff that's just been lost that was in the play, do you know? Or?
1: Yes, the, there are, are changes from the play. Um, the external scenes that you see, obviously, are ones that have been added for the film, so apart from Hampton Court. Um, so the business of going to... Uh, I think they called it Whiteridges, but, I mean, it's Selfridges where they filmed it... Um, That is done when Mrs. Wallace returns and describes where she has been, again, the, the acquisition of um, a bit on the side uh, for Mr. Wallace, we have no introduction to him having any other sources because we only ever see him in the house. So we only hear about the fact that he works uh, at a diamond firm, to jewelers and diamond firm. It's all done in just reports. So in a sense, what happens with the film by staging some of these things is it makes those elements slightly larger and slightly bigger and we notice them, whereas they are really introduced as plot points in the script so that elaboration makes them feel a little bit more out of place okay. it's very interesting though to look at the photographs of the original stage show with regard to how um how it ended up on film you can actually match images from the photographs of the stage version to particular scenes and moments in the film so i think that in the course of uh, a developing it as a film they took out some of the dialogue they put in some things that fill out the action so the whole business of the russian dancers suddenly appearing in his mind's eye i mean this obviously is um is not there at all it was almost and the same with the business of going in through the window and panning round that need to emphasize that there was a bigger world in the film maybe leads to some of these changes because it didn't need they didn't need to pretend that on the stage it literally was you saw those rooms, you were told what happened away from that, and that was it. Okay.
0: I think we have to finish up, because there's another film in here. Do we have mm. one more question from the audience, and then we got the mic? just want to
7: say, about the affair that the uh, the husband was having, there was this tiny little scene where he's putting money for the prince into an envelope, and then yeah. takes one out, and then does it. And it's obviously sort of a bit in, in, in the play, and it's, it's very funny, but I thought that's not like him at all to be like sneaking money away from the prince like that so
1: that kind of
0: he's been corrupted it, by the yeah, presence of the yeah, prince that's what I, like, yeah. anyway
1: that was my thought um, it's, it's clearer in the play some of that motivation
0: I'm really sorry we've got to close because of, it's a working cinema <laughs> um, don't know what the film is next is it the crocodiles again don't know what it is <laughs> <laughs> uh, could a quick round of applause for John because he's coming all the way over here And uh, we'll see you in two weeks' time. It's a Flanaganland film called A Fire Has Been Arranged, and our guest is uh, Steve Chibnall, who wrote the book Quota Quickies, and it has the Buddy Bradley Rhythm
6: Girls in it, who are well worth seeing. All playing fire fire engine ladies. Yeah, we love them. (laughs) We love them.
0: (laughs) Thank you to the brilliant John Snelson for coming on the show and I hope your journey home was less plagued by train cancellations than the one to the Kino. And if you have managed to hear this podcast without too much difficulty, then we should all thank our replacement sound recorders for this episode, Sam Durham, and thanks as usual for the warm welcome to Paul and the team at the Kino. If you too would like to experience that warm welcome and watch some mad old films of some nice people. Come along. You can book tickets for any of the remaining films in the season at ticketsource.co.uk forward slash Kino Quickies. And all the information you will need about literally anything in the universe is at KinoQuickies.com. The Kino Quickies podcast is produced by me, Dom Dalagi, and our in-house quota quickie expert is Dr. Lawrence Knapper of King's College London. But now, back to the closing act of the synopsis of I lived with you. To find out how the film concludes consider yourself warned that this is basically going to be one big spoiler so if you don't want to know what happened and would rather watch the film feel free to press stop now if you'd like to buy the film on dvd you'll find a link in the show notes at KinoCookies.com. if you're leaving us now bye bye and we look forward to seeing you at the Kino soon but if you're still here and are okay with spoilers let's carry on When we left the Wallace house, just 20 minutes or so ago, the place was in turmoil. At Mrs. Wallace's long-awaited tea party at which she triumphantly presented Prince Felix to the posh ladies, everybody got rather squiffy on Felix's vodka, at which point Mr. Wallace's brassy ex-mistress Violet Bradshaw turned up at the front door. A huge row started, culminating in Felix dragging Violet into another room. Mrs. Wallace, in her fury and upset, has turfed young Ada out of the house for being no better than she ought to be. And Mr. Wallace is skulking in the kitchen, keeping his head as low as humanly possible. All of this in the presence of a group of very shocked posh ladies. Let us continue. Upon Felix's polite but emphatic instruction, the posh ladies leave and he goes back to Violet, who has now regained her composure. Soon, the old Russian charm has worked its magic, and he's about to move in for a kiss when he stops. What if somebody were to come in, he says. He asks her to write her name and address on a piece of paper so he can visit her some other time, and she readily agrees, but it was all a clever trap.
4: Would you like to know what's written here now? I have tried to blackmail Mr. Wallis upon whom I have no claim whatsoever. Oh.
2: I never wrote that.
4: Oh, no, I wrote that. You signed it.
2: You swine!
4: Thank you. I quite agree with you. But you've hurt the people I love.
2: You filthy!
4: I shall now take you to the front door, and then I shall deposit you in the street, which you will recognize. Goodbye, darling.
0: Mr. Wallace is, of course, extremely grateful for Felix's intervention, but the storm is still raging elsewhere in the house. Ada is about to tearfully leave and Mrs Wallace, throwing all discretion to the wind, blurts out that Felix is going to propose to Glad. This, Glad declares, must be untrue.
2: Mum, you're mad, isn't she, Felix?
0: Well you heard what she said.
2: What she said? What the hell do I care what she said? It's what I said. I know, dear. But you won't say no. Oh, won't I? When I'm asked. When I'm asked.
4: All right. Will you marry me?
2: No. No. No, 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 no,
0: She runs out of the room. Felix is impressed and delighted by Glad's rejection. Ada leaves and Mrs. Wallace goes out to make sure her husband is not long behind her. Glad returns to the living room and to Felix. She may have had second thoughts about Felix's proposal, but he, as they say, must accept her first answer.
2: Are you trying to tell me you're backing out? I'm not in. Oh, I know what this is called. It's called getting out of it gracefully. Gracefully. Caddishly, more like.
4: Well, my dear child, you said no. Not once, but 84 times.
2: Oh, but just because I said no, then, it doesn't mean that I... Oh, I'm... no,
4: no. We Leniefs, you know, we never ask for a thing twice.
2: Where would you be now if I hadn't found you starving? Oh, I'm sorry. That was common, wasn't it?
4: Not more than I expect.
2: Don't you call me common. You call
4: yourself common.
2: It's not the same thing. Fact remains. As long as we know. So long as we know. This is what I get for being soppy.
4: Soppy? Oh, you mean romantic.
2: Yes, romantic. Only we common people call it being soppy. I was bowled over by talking to a prince. It doesn't mean a damn thing. But I've always told you that. I've made your bed. I've mended your socks. Do you think I care then who you were? I only did it because I, because Because I... you loved me? Oh, oh, no. Liar. No, lie yourself. I did it because I.
4: Because, because you love me. No, no, say I it.
2: won't. Say it, say it. No. Say it. Because
0: I loved you. Come here. So, it looks like the wedding is back on. Are you confused yet?
4: Oh, yes, yes. We will marry, we will have many babies, and we will fight.
2: Oh, no, we won't fight. But
4: of course we will fight. I'll marry people, always fight. It's half the fun. You see, first of all, I shall beat you to show how much I hate you, and then I shall beat you to show how much I love you.
2: And how will I know which it is?
4: (laughs) You won't know, darling, but
0: I shall know. Shall I beat you once to show you?
2: Yeah. Oh, bit of a savage, aren't you?
0: Okay. Flossie, it turns out, has heard all. She has deep concerns about the idea of Felix and Glad getting married and just wishes he would leave them all alone. She's aghast at the effect that Felix's presence has had on the household already and fears it will only get worse.
3: Just cast your mind back. Up to the time you came here, we were doing pretty nicely. Nothing very grand, but then we weren't intended to be grand. Look at us now. There's my own sister, half fuddled all the time. Behaving like a fishwife one minute and putting on airs and graces the next. Ada, who's a good girl. Really, she is. Gone her own silly way. Look at Will. Turned out of his own house after 24 years. Breaking his heart. And then young Vlad. Yes. Who's a worker and a good one, too. Out of a job and not caring.
4: And all this? is because of me.
3: It's all because of you. You can't put an eagle in with a lot of sparrows. They don't mix.
0: Deeply saddened by the pain he has caused, Felix decides it's best if he goes. Before he leaves, he hands the locket, which still has some diamonds attached, to Flossie to be given to Glad. On his way out the door, he turns to Flossie.
4: Oh, uh, could you tell me, please, at what time do they close that, That um, palace, that um, Hampton Court.
0: It's
3: open till sunset.
4: Oh, till then. Oh, that is nice.
0: Without Felix noticing, Flossie performs a small curtsy as he leaves the Wallis house for the last time. Glad hears the door.
2: Was that Felix just went out? Yes, he's gone. Gone? Just gone. What have you been saying to him,
3: Glad, dear? He was never meant to be here. How do you know? Haven't
2: we and We've been lived and even here? We've too much. You can't. No one cares. Glad, listen to me. You listen to me. Where's he gone? What's the good? Good? I'll tell you what's the good. I'm going after him. If he's going to starve, then I'll starve with him. If he won't work, then I'll work for him. He's turned me from a rotten little snob into somebody different. You'll never stand it. Oh, won't I? Well, see about that. Now, come on. Where's he gone? No. Where's he gone, Glad? Are you sure? Sure.
3: Why, of course, I'm sure. He did ask when they closed Hampton Court. He left these for you. Three diamonds.
0: She hangs the locket around Glad's neck. They're yours. Glad runs off after Felix, and Flossie turns to Mr and Mrs Wallace, who was struggling down the stairs with Mr Wallace's trunk.
3: Edie? Do you think you're strong enough to help will carry that up again? Certainly not! Oh, Edie. Edie. <laughs>
0: They tearfully embrace and all is forgiven.